Hi guys, welcome to the Last Set Podcast. Thank you for very much for being patient. I'm back after a week off from being shit sick, but I'm back and I'm uh, got my buddy Morgan on, and uh, I'm really glad we got to do this, man. Especially before you're shooting off to Spain and all that. Yeah. So, how you doing, man? Yeah, I'm good. Nice getting here. Um, you know, unfortunately, I couldn't ride the bike this time, but made up for it by walking. And this isn't your allegedly, fir- yeah. <laughs> this isn't your first uh, appearance on the podcast. I mean, remember when we came back and we did the first Saturday session? And the reason why I wanted to do this in person was for two reasons. One, because I know that you're going to be going away for how long? Well, <laughs> that's defined. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I mean, I bought bought the ticket, fly out one month from today. It's uh, one way. So yeah, I was thinking um, going over to Spain first might spend at least two years there, and then after that, who knows. Exactly. So open path. If we don't do it now, we're never going to be able to do it. So that's why, like, I thought to myself, okay, don't worry about the next Saturday session. I'm going to get this man in for his own personal episode because I feel like we got a lot to unpack. Cheers, by the way, man. Oh, cheers. You came in and he's very well dressed. He's bought the coffee. Am I the only one who's made you a coffee before your podcast? Yeah, you are. Oh, you are getting into the good books. Well, I mean, oh, that's good coffee. What is that? I don't reveal my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, is this um, anyway? So let's uh, let's start from the beginning, man. Let's give the uh, give listeners a little bit of unpacking to who you are, yeah. and how you got here. So um, my name is Morgan. I uh, graduated in history. I suppose I should start there with the studies. I think right now that's the most important part of my life. There are quite a, a few facets, I guess, I could talk about. Um, but yeah, graduated in history at the end of last year. Uh, finished off my honours um, in history and Spanish. And I think that's where I want to take my life, that kind of direction, academia, research. Um, for the first time in my life, I think I've found a solid direction that I want to follow. Um, it's because I had so much fun in honours, you know, writing a 15,000-word dissertation. 15,000 words. Not much compared to the poor PhD guys. They have to do 80,000, I believe. <laughs> that's like a thesis. That's a thesis, Yeah, that's a it? thesis, yeah. <sighs> Fuck that. But... Um, I just, I enjoyed the process so much. Like, no exaggerations. Monday to Saturday, I was at uni, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. for the last few months of the dissertation. And I loved every second of it. Really? I got energy from it, you know? I was good at it. So I think that's pretty much the universe telling me. What is it about those long hours of typing that makes you, like, so contempt and being able to do that? Because back when I was in university, man, the vet, the, I was always one of those in-person learners. I had to be there at the lectures. Mm. I had to be there participating in class. If you try to get me to sit down at home when we had COVID and try to study, I hated it so much. Yeah, no. I was one of those people. Yeah. I hated the online lectures. I hated doing online. And a lot of people are very comfortable doing online. And you can study your own way, but <laughs> like, how do you do that, man? Like, What drives you to do that Monday to Sunday? You know, the, um, the guilty confession I have to make is for most of that time... I mean, until the end of semester, towards the end of semester, towards the end of the year, mm-hmm. um, socializing was a big part of it. I think that was totally for the better. I mean, if I had spent every hour at uni actually studying purely, that would not have been good. And like um, halfway through the year, I actually reached a real stagnant point where everything just froze. Like I wasn't making any progress, real writer's block. And um, I had to go away. I found myself going away in March, pretty much all of March and a bit of June um, for work. Um, this was with the army, of course, and um, I found that stepping away so far from the honours, I mean, we're talking like really far, we're talking 
one day I was, you know, wearing a cardigan, drinking a coffee in the library, reading history, and then two weeks later, I, uh, the joke I always make is doing a shit in a rock crevice in the Pilbara <laughs> during a thunderstorm, <laughs> stark naked, like. <laughs> okay. It's a bit of a um, bit of a shock to the system. That definitely helped my study, hundred percent. Like coming back after being totally disconnected from the world for um, essentially a month. Uh, did only good things for it. Yeah, I remember we were actually in at work. Obviously, that's how we know each other because we work together. Mm. But I knew you back when you were at university and all that as well. <laughs> and one day, you just at work, you telling me, "Oh yeah, Joe. By the way, I'm going to be going away from um for a month, so I can't do the next week's podcast." I was like, "Oh, where you go? I'm going away for operations." <laughs> yeah, <I was> like, <laughs> what? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then you just dropped off the face of the earth for a month. We didn't hear from you, obviously. And then <laughs> you came back to work one day and you were like, I was like, oh, shit, he's back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty good. I mean, um, so juggling study and the uh, and the army has been pretty good. The, the army reserve, they make it really easy. Um, okay. I like, you know, now that I'm moving away from Australia, sadly, my time with the army is probably up. But, um, <clears throat> but I um, wholeheartedly recommend it. To anyone having having you know, been in since 2019, I've had only good experiences, and like it can provide you such a diversity of experiences. Um, it'll just like it'll enrich your life. It'll complement your life in so many ways. And the Army Reserve really understands that it's kind of a part-time gig for you, so it's quite easy to you know find time off here. Uh, they understand if you can't make a course last minute because something's come up in your, you know, they say real life. Um, so. Yeah. Wow. So at what point in your life were you just like saying to yourself, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. And oh, the army? Yeah. Oh, I suffered a heartbreak. <laughs> really? <laughs> nah, it was one of the many reasons. Yeah, but that's one, um, probably the most adventurous reason of quite a few. Um, late 2019, I, uh, yeah, I still remember sitting there at the third floor of Reed Library at the uni. Yeah. Uh, received a message on Facebook. I remember closing the laptop lid walking down the stairs, walking around the Oval once, and then just calling up and saying, yeah, I'd like to sign up, please. Uh, infantry, let's go. <laughs> wow. Yeah, just like that. One of, one of the more dramatic things in my life, but, you know. <laughs> you got to admit, though, we have such a finite amount of time on this earth, and I do feel like people who go and in pursue that venture, like, it does a lot for them and all that. Like, well, one of the things I like to ask, because obviously doing something like that, that would be rough, you know. The training, oh. <laughs> the, the you know, the lack of sleep, the physical strain, the mental strain. There's one thing I actually wanted to ask you personally as well, because we both know Kai. Kai came on the podcast a few, uh, quite a few weeks back, and he told me the story like, and it was some study that they did, and Jordan Peterson mentioned it as well, that when you go through some kind of like really intense adversity, like when you go through some really intense period of your life, your physical features of your face change. <laughs> Yeah, I um, uh, if you're talking purely aesthetically, yeah, totally. I mean, did I came back. Did that from, happen to you? I came back from um, Kapuka uh, boot camp, uh, which for the reservists is only 35 days full time, as it's bloody 80. I couldn't imagine. Um, came back from that and had to go straight into hotel quarantine because this was at the height of COVID. Oh. And um, I remember video calling my friends from hotel quarantine, first time they'd seen me in 35 days, and they were like, "Geez, lean." That's all they said. It's like, yeah, my cheeks had disappeared entirely. But, you know, I think with the army, the thing is you, it's a constant series of, of like hard things, of adversity. 
that seems impossible while you're doing it, and then you make your way to the other side. I think that's that's a really good a really good lesson I've learned from the army. You know, you go through something really impossible, like boot camp when you're doing it, kapuka when you're doing it, feels impossible. Uh, you know, waking up, having to do all your morning routine within eight minutes, um, which is what we get got it down to towards the end. Um, it all seems impossible, and then you leave kapuka and you do your specialist training. For me, this was a um, patrol course. Okay. In uh, Karatha, um, and you suddenly realize that life can be a lot harder than boot camp. And then you finish the patrol course and you go on to your first operation and you're like, oh, geez, now I'm sitting in a boat in the middle of winter, in the middle of the ocean for 10 hours straight. In a boat? Oh, Whoa. that's a story of its own. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> that was my first um, experience. And I don't even get on boats much anymore. Uh, well, <laughs> at all in life, like only with the army. But yeah, that was mine. So fresh off the uh, patrol course, basically... Um, I put my hand up for this because, like I said, suffering writer's block at the time, so I was just keen to do anything. Mm. I put my hand up to, yeah, go into the middle of nowhere. To get to the middle of nowhere, of course, you had to sit on what is essentially a large dinghy for uh, 10 hours straight in the middle of winter on your during own? a thunderstorm. Uh, our patrols are made up of six people, so oh. I had five others on the boat with me, yeah, okay. and um, two uh, two boat operators. But, I mean, like that's that's one of the top three mentally hardest things I've had to do in my life. I mean, trying to piss off a boat in like rough conditions when you can't see the land. <laughs> so you can't just put, go in the bottle and then just empty the bottle? Well, I was wearing eight layers at the time because that's oh, wow. how cold it was. And we were soaked after the first 20 minutes anyway, so it didn't make a difference. So what happens if you have to drop a deuce? Oh, you, you just don't ask. You just don't think about it. Do you, do you just like drop it in the bag? <laughs> <and> <laughs> throw the bag overboard or you jump in the water and drop it in the water? You got to uh, hope it sinks. <laughs> let's say you gotta have a, you got to have a good dead hang. You gotta gotta work create, your yeah, I'm creating this idea now. Did you just snap it off and throw it like a gorilla? Or? <laughs> I didn't snap it off and throw it, nah. Um, Luckily, the ocean does most of the work for you. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it sinks. <laughs> okay. So, moving on from that, man, like, well, obviously we'll come back to it, but the one thing I was actually quite curious is that you're one of the few people in my life that I've never met who's just always happy. Like, <laughs> Ne never, I never see you down. You're one of those people I always see is always happy, reg and regardless of the interactions as well with the people. Uh, and I know that's a weird, quite, that might be a weird character. I think it's a very strong characteristic of yours. And you also, I always look at you as like a bit of a nomad as well. Yeah, totally. You have absolutely <laughs> no uh, attachment to anything. You're one of the very few people I know that has almost no attachment. Like you walk ride your bike everywhere <laughs> like not even that but you you were telling me just before this that oh yeah don't worry if i come early i have plenty of books to read yeah well, i got three in the backpack over there then yeah well what do you got in works there? in progress um i'm reading after many friends have recommended it. i'm not sure if you've heard of it uh 100 years of solitude i've heard of that one. gabriel garcia marcus yeah that, yeah so many people have mentioned it to me and like yeah i'd kind of heard of it mm -hmm. but I never actually investigated it and now i'm finally getting into the meat of it what a magical book like really yeah. I, I recommend it. When I'm yeah. done with it, I'll send it your way. That's okay. <laughs> what are the other two? Uh, the Periodic Table by Primo Levi. So Primo Levi um, was a Holocaust survivor, a mm -hmm. chemist by trade, uh, Italian, Jewish, and um, he survived, I think it was either 11 or 13 months in Auschwitz. He survived, and um, oh. he, um, he was working as a chemist in Auschwitz. In 1947... He published his memoirs like like that's not even two month two years after the liberation. Literally, yeah. He published his memoirs called "If This Is a Man," and um, it was so notable because 
he wrote as a chemist. So the language that he uses is so detached, so scientific, that it allows you to just like understand the brutality of what he experienced. Anyway, in 1975, he wrote this book that I'm reading now, The Periodic Table, which is a collection of short stories. And each short story, most of them are autobiographical. Each short story is named, is titled after um, an element of the periodic table. And the way he links the story to the element is just so elegant. Wow. Like, um, it's really profound. Yeah. And the third? And the third, it's actually a uh, book by Arjun Brahm, who is the spiritual director of the Buddhist Society of West Australia. The Um, Buddhist Society? Yeah. Okay. It's called uh, Opening the Door of Your Heart. And uh, it's a collection, again, of short stories. these ones all have a Buddhist character then there's a lot to learn. I've actually read it before. I'm uh, currently rereading it because there's a lot of good stuff to get from that. Do you, do you know the story of Buddha? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So for those of you listening, the story of Buddha was, and Morgan, I'm, I believe you can correct me where I'm wrong, <laughs> but the story of the Buddha is when there was this guy who, there was this king and he was so rich and he had a son and he, was that strong? Oh, yeah, it's, <laughs> and it's he, um, <laughs> And he didn't want, he wanted the son to have absolutely everything he wanted. And he wanted them to, you know, not have to suffer at all. So he built the walls up around the palace and he could have anything he wanted, the food, the women, the entertainment. And the kid grew up never knowing suffering. And then, uh, what was it? So the kid grew up never knowing suffering, but because he never suffered for anything, he was miserable all the time. And then one night he snuck out of the palace and then he discovered what life was around him for the first time. He saw people in pain, people sick, people dying, people begging. Mm. And then he lived as a beggar and a thief for a while. I think he did. I can't remember how long in time time periods. And then um, I think during that time when he was, he, I think, and then I think what happened was then moving on from there was one day he sat under a tree and apparently he yeah, sat under that tree. The body for, tree. For, oh, okay. And he sat under that tree for like a really long period mm. of time. Yeah. And then he came to the conclusion, which was one of the conclusions that Buddhist, Buddhism is built upon, is because the thing is about Buddhism as well, I really like, is they don't see Buddha as their God. They see it as their teacher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the fundamental aspects of Buddhism is that life is suffering, mm-hmm. which was one of the conclusions that he came to yeah. on the train. And I read about that and I'm like, absolutely right. 100% agree with that. Yeah, totally. There, there are so many. Um, there's, I think, what Buddhism really um, shines at is is giving you those short kind of statements that really just hit you and can stay with you. Um, life is suffering. Let me think of another one. Um, gee, off the top of my head, <laughs> can't think of one right now, but it'll come to me. But I mean, like like you say, you know, if if I seem always happy, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I do smile a lot. It's landed me in hot water a bit, not least at <laughs> at boot camp. Yeah, but um, but I guess it's just you know you got to live every day, one day at a time. Something that I always try and live by. One of those one of those you know Buddhist rules, Buddhist derived rules that I try and live by is um, live one day at a time, one step at a time, one breath at a time. And I actually formulated that while I was doing some um, guided meditation at the um at the Buddhist temple in Nolamara, um, of which Arjun Brahm is the spiritual director. Um, and that is, you know, those large-scale things in life, so studying a degree or starting a family or relocating overseas, live those one day at a time. Just don't make any plans in the future because the future is uncertain. We uh, don't know I, what the I future is, I agree with right? that. 
then one day at a time. And then the next level down, um, say patting a dog or writing an essay mm-hmm. or getting a coffee with your friend. Mm-hmm. Live that one step at a time. Yeah, It's a bit more, you know, a little bit more immediate. And then finally, the most kind of intimate moments just with yourself, like meditating or like sitting on a beach by yourself or, you know, or going to sleep. Mm-hmm. Live that life one breath at a time. But the key is, you know, who cares about the long term? We only live 90, 90 years. Yeah. So there's no such thing as long term. Everything's short term. Well, that's oh, okay. You know? Well, one the one thing that you, you just said that stuck with me is that nothing in life really is certain, you know, like the saying goes, nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. But what I tell about people about <laughs> that is that I never make five-year plans for anything. I'll make a plan of what I would like to do in the space of a year, but the plan will always, always change. In five years... People things ask like, oh, what, wh- where do you see your podcast in five years? Where do you see your business in five years? And I think to myself, well, I help us. I, I hope I'm still doing it. Yeah. I don't care if I'm, you know, in another studio space or how many hundred episodes or whenever or not it leads to anything. I just say, oh, well, I hope I'm still doing it because or I hope I still enjoy it. Yeah. Because if I don't enjoy it or don't find meaning in it, then I will sway away from it. And that's that's the that's how I live it. But. One thing I always got to like remind people is time is so fucking finite. Mm-hmm. And I've like li- realized this now when I'm 23, about to become 24. And then I'm almost halfway to 50. And then I'm all in pretty much a quarter of a, a century of the way through. And then I realized that all well, well, that's happened in 24 years. And then mm-hmm. I break that down to what's happened in three years to what's happened in one year. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah. But when you look back at it, that's when you feel like, oh shit. I've got a limited amount of time left. Mm. But the other thing is, the, it's scary to think about it as well, but where I'm also going with this, reverting back to three, five-year plans, is the more certain you are about something, the more uh, anxious you'll feel. Yeah. And that's when you kind of just got to let life like sort of like play out because also like in terms of three, five-year plans, like there's no guarantee you're going to make it to tomorrow. Mm. You know, t- nothing's gar- not tomorrow isn't guaranteed. So, you may as well just do what you find meaningful now, not what you find happy. What makes you happy, but what you find meaning. Because happiness, if you pursue happiness, you're never gonna. You, I don't think you're ever gonna be happy. Yeah. Can I? Can I tell you a story? Yeah. Go on. I'm listening. <laughs> I, I learned this one from podcast um, is for. <laughs> yeah. There's um. So yeah, I, I like to think, you know, Buddhism. I try and draw a bit of that into my own kind of, you know, personal mix of uh, guiding philosophies and another. A group that has often interested me are actually the um, the Quakers, mm-hmm. which uh, rose up as a um, a religious movement in post Civil War England in the 17th century. Um, nowadays, there exist um, secular Quakers. It's it's like it can be a philosophy or a religion. Um, and I'm one of the one of the things I picked up. I think it was from an internet post by a, by a Quaker author. Was um, and I've kind of run with it and tried to make my own uh, story out of it. So picture yourself in a forest, right? Okay. And you're walking through a forest. It's nighttime. It's dark. There's a storm. And you're tripping over the undergrowth because there's no path. You're just walking through this forest. And the only light that you have is one little candle. And that candle's fragile. You know, it could get blown out by the storm at any time. So you have to take care of it. <clears throat> now, what happens when we try and put our hope in a future, in a particular future outcome. So, for instance, you say, "I hope 
this podcast is still going in five years or I hope I get to work tomorrow, like uh, early. <laughs> we can hope you do get to work tomorrow, but yeah. I hope I get there early. Or, you know, <coughs> I hope I do well in this exam. Mm -hmm. The What we're doing there is we're getting that candle and we're throwing it into the middle of the forest because we're hoping it's going to light up the thing that we're looking for. But when you throw that candle, firstly, you've just thrown your only candle into like a storm. It could get blown out. You know, if we don't meet the expectations that we've put our faith in, that's devastating for us. We hate that feeling, right? We hate feeling disappointed. And that's your candle blowing out. Mm. Uh, secondly, even if you do throw your candle in the right spot, <clears throat> how are you going to get there? You know, you've just thrown away your only light source. Now you're going to have to trip over all the roots to get there. What's better is to keep your candle close to you and just walk one step at a time. Again, we come back to that one step at a time. Um, don't put your faith in a particular outcome, but be satisfied by having your faith in your human ability to constructively respond to any outcome, good or bad, as you have done many times throughout your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, just that. Yeah. Just that. I like that. I want that a lot. That's, that's what I think when you, when you mentioned, um, you know, having faith in the future and disappointment and all that. I think it all comes down to just trying to detach yourself yeah. from the future. And yeah. live in, like, live today. Yeah, well, another thing that's changed how the way I live a lot lately is, um, are you familiar with the author Charles Bukowski? I'm not. Uh, so Please Charles Bukowski, he was a prolific writer, but he was also an absolute deadbeat. He was a drunk. He was just a pervert and a whole bunch of things. And uh, he grew up with a father who used to beat the shit out of him. Right. He was a drunk and he had severe acne in his face and it really affected his um, you know, teenage years growing up and all that and he had a lot of self-trauma. He was a writer, but he never ever um, really got anywhere right up until the end of his career into his 50s. But when he was still in his 50s, he was still a drunk. Mm -hmm. He was still, even though he was a successful writer, he was, you know, still rocking up to meets, drunk and abusing people, insulting people, and but he still wrote throughout of his throughout pretty much nearly all of his life, and it never stopped and it never slowed down. And on his uh, headstone, he said, "Don't try." <laughs> Literally, he said that. So, where he was going with that was, uh, if you have to try to be something, if you have to force yourself to care about something, if you have to try and be someone then it's not worth it yeah the more sometimes and what i mean by that is like ah uh, what's the best best way i could put it it's like do you remember when you were when you were a kid right and someone asked you what your favorite color was mm -hmm. and you would say blue or red yep. and you can't have an explanation why why you like that color in particular and then people say it's not because that color chose uh, so it's not because you chose that color it's because that color chose you <laughs> because there was no thought process behind it mm -hmm. so it's the thing i believe about life is like if you have to try to do something and you get gain success in that thing it's not because you tried that thing it's because that thing finally tried you and what your reasons were worth for doing for it and then he wrote this poem to a young writer he says too many people uh write for the wrong reasons it, some people want the cars, the money. Some people want the girls with the blue bells in their hair. But 
it's when you get famous in writing, it's not because writing, you chose writing, it's because writing chose you. It's when you're mad with it. It's when you're obsessed with it, when it's under your nose, sorry, up your nose and under mm-hmm. your finger ba- fingernails, uh-huh. when it's the only thing you can th- think you can care about. That's when you get successful at something. So don't try to be doing something for the sake of something else. Just don't try and just have to do the thing and you have to feel as if this is effortless. And that's the thing I say about this podcast, like, I don't. I'm not trying to be any like famous or anything. And I've been. I've done so many episodes now, and it's gone to a point where I see other uh, podcasts or people who are celebrities and they start podcasts and they go big and all that and they get the money. But then they just realize like, oh, they're already big and they all want that fame that comes with it and talk to the people. But I'm happy to just talk to yeah. my mate who I see every day at the gyms yeah, and exactly. and yeah. that's how when I like that when I think about it I was like fuck all right I enjoy <laughs> it that's 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 why I'm that's why I'm still going but that's that's really where I'm trying to go with the idea uh so kids don't try <laughs> <laughs> you're doing it that's what's important yeah uh anyway but another thing I wanted to also recommend is uh since we're on the topic of books as well just earlier on yep. have you ever heard of Victor Frankl Victor Frankl yeah um you wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Yes, this has been recommended to me by a very good friend of mine as well. Yeah. When I <laughs> when I mentioned Primo Levi's periodic table. So oh. I feel like they may they may go quite well together. I haven't uh, been able to read it yet. Oh unfortunately. Phenomenal. Yeah. It's probably one of the best books I've ever re- read. And it's such a short book as well. Yeah. So I'll give you the backstory to it. So Victor Frankel, he was a psychologist. Uh, psychotherapist. He <laughs> was a doctor. Let's just say he had a doctor. And he uh, survived the Nazi concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And then what happened was uh, he, man search for meaning, he was talking about how can man find meaning in like the worst conditions possible. Yep. And then when he went, when they were in the, locked up in the Nazi concentration camps, and he said the first people to die were the optimists, mm. the ones who were saying, oh, don't worry, we'll be out by November, we'll be out by Christmas, people will come and save us. They were the ones to first die. The ones who survived, the main, the most, the ones who mainly survived the concentration camps were the ones who had something that they believed that needed them when they got on the way out, like something they wow. really had to live for. Yeah, like the artists, the painters, the musicians, yeah, the teachers, those people who had a profession or something that they were in pursuit of or something they believe chose them waiting for them on the outside. Those are the ones who actually made it through the concentration camps. Yeah. So he goes on to talk about his time in those concentration camps, but also the whole meaning of it. Yeah. You know, so that, that one I can highly recommend. Once you're done with the three. Yeah. Very deep stuff. Yeah. No, it's hard to juggle those three. They, um, how do you read? Do you read one book at a time or do you read three? Like try and, I do. I read, I try and read one book at a time, but then something will get me, you know, well, two of them I'm rereading. So it's easier to focus on a hundred years of solitude. Cause that's just, um, it's a page turner. It's magical. It's like, I describe that book as, you're in a rainforest and everywhere you look, there's just a different path to walk down, a different rabbit hole to fall down. That's like that book. You can read as deep into it as you want or you can read it on the surface level and still find enjoyment in it. It's um, 100 Years of Solitude established the genre of magical realism, which is now like heavily associated with um, Latin America and literature as well as film. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially realistic plots, realistic enough plots, real characters real settings and then out of nowhere just a magical element 
that isn't addressed. It's a bit like surrealism. Mm-hmm. Like for example, there's a um, there's a certain scene <coughs> in the book um, where a character commits suicide, and wow. it describes the um, it describes the trail of blood that leaves his room, and how it goes down the stairs, goes out of the house, turns left, turns right, goes up some stairs, goes down, goes into his mother's house, circles around on the wall so it doesn't stain the carpet, and then goes into the kitchen where his mum is cooking. And the mum turns around and screams, oh my God, my son is dead. Like that kind of stuff, which you can, you know, you can read about that. What does that tell you about family? What does that tell you about the connection between these two characters? Or you can just like pass over it and go down a different rabbit hole in the same book. You know, like, I think that's really what 100 Years of Solitude, what magical realism has to offer, that rabbit hole effect. Uh-huh. Rabbit hole effect. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh well, let me ask you this, but when it comes to reading, are you someone who has to finish a book regardless or are you someone who reads a book and once they find it boring, they just chuck it away? Nah, I can definitely chuck it away. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like that as well. People tell me with TV shows like uh, their attention span is that they start a TV show, they feel like they have to finish it completely. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> Your attention span, like it, there's so much to absorb, especially it's the same with books. Sometimes I'll be reading a book at about halfway through. I'm just like, no, you know, I'm not in the mood for this. Yeah. Like I read a Stephen King book and then just like about when I got to 100 pages, I was like, like, again, I have to try and force myself to write, read mm-hmm. this. I'm just like, no, nah, yeah. take it to the side. When it gets hard. I yeah. mean, um, John Le Carre, John Le Carre is a funny one because I read The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and I loved it. I've read it multiple times. Like it was such a, such a good book. And then um, this year I went to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is arguably his more famous work. Okay. And I honestly hated it. I couldn't connect with it at all. Really? Yeah, I got towards the end and um, this was another book that I had with me sitting on a rock in the middle of nowhere for 10 days straight with no connection. Really? So um, I had to try and enjoy it. And I, like I couldn't. But you know, you can't really put it down. The alternative I had was uh, Men's Health Magazine. <laughs> and um, you know, what's Men's Health Magazine when I get to see you at the gym every day? Yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Fair <laughs> enough. So let's revert back to the, to the Yoon days a little bit. Yeah. What made you want to go with history and all that? Mm. What uh, made you want to go with studying Spanish? Well, I started uni um, as a music student. Oh. I was doing music as my first major, composition. Okay. Uh, Spanish as my, uh, sorry, history as my second major. And uh, doing Spanish on the side. Um, I ended up focusing on history because um, some of the early history units I did, I just got totally caught up in those lectures. I enjoyed it for the content, just for learning about the past. And then... As I studied more and more history, I really got into university history, which is different from school history, right? In school history, what we learn is like dates. We learn reasons for things. We are expected to memorize things and then blurt them out on essays. In uni, history is all about making your own point and then backing it up with evidence. And you're not measured on like your point. I mean, you could go out and just be wrong if you like, you know, quote your facts incorrectly. But otherwise, the interpretation is all in your hands. And it's then how you back up that interpretation that you're actually, um, that you're marked on, essentially. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the process of historical research. So I, um, yeah, followed that rabbit hole. We, in second year, we did this unit, historiography. So the study of the study of history. Um, Sounds like a really dry unit, but it was the most, uh, one of the most informative periods of my life, I think. Um, The amount of stuff that I learned and... Um, part of that, you look at the question of truth in history 
And this is um, <clears throat> it's an interesting point that's coming up in politics all the time, everywhere, and especially today. You know, what is the truth? What is historical truth? Mm-hmm. Is there a historical truth? Um, and I find my views align with the English historian E.H. Carr, um, the 20th century historian, who, um, just to quickly, you know, quickly explain it, he explains it with this metaphor, right? History is like two people painting a mountain from different sides of the mountain. You know, on one side of the mountain, there might be a really easy slope going up and it might look super easy. And so they paint this really nice looking mountain, basically a hill. The other side of the mountain is steep and there's, you know, ice visible and it's really rocky. And so the other painter paints that mountain. Now, both of them have painted the mountain. They both painted accurate representations of the mountain just from different sides of the same mountain. And, um, yeah, that's that's one thing that I really enjoy about history, <laughs> that interpretation side. That's what history at uni is like. Was it modern or ancient history that you dabbled in? In high school, modern, and then... You get to uni and the distinction does kind of break down a little bit. It's more like um, the classics as opposed to history. And the classics deals with Rome, Greece, um, that kind of area. Um, the classics is a lot more kind of, you know, of a, a very discipline nowadays. It kind of encompasses philosophy. It encompasses literature, archaeology, and history. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons I thought for that was actually quite recently, you know, once you get further and further back in time, once the histories are done, for the most part, people do not dispute that, you know, there were wars between Persia and the Greek city-states in ancient times. So once you get further and further back and the actual events themselves have been discussed enough, that's when the discipline actually starts branching out into other areas. So that's why the classics is so varied. You have people studying literature of the ancient period, the philosophy of the ancient period, Whereas, you know, of the 20th century, people are still debating with political ramifications whether events actually occurred. Um, Can you give an example? Well, an example of... Let's give three examples. So, yeah, the Greek, the Greco-Persian Wars. What people argue whenever or not they actually happened. No, well, that's in classical history. That's okay. firmly established. Then in 20th century history, let's look at... Um, gee, let's talk about Kenya right? Mm-hmm. And um, we're still uncovering crimes committed, um, like crimes against humanity committed in Kenya during the so-called decolonization of Africa. Um, and historians, act, I mean, th- that's a really interesting topic, but I've just realized we're in Australia. Why not talk about, you know, the conflict that's risen up regarding uh, settl- um, frontier warfare? So whether Australia was conquered or whether Australia was colonised, to what extent was it a violent uh, colonisation? These matters have been discussed in detail in recent years. And every time um, a historian provides their input on one side or other of the debate, um, it'll flare up again both in history and in politics. Um, Because, yeah, we're talking about the birth of the Australian nation and we're talking about whether or not that happened um, in you know, a narrative of kind of settler colonialism or a narrative of violent dispossession of people who already lived here. Um, and, yeah. So that's, that's history is political in a way? Oh, so it's like yeah. you, highly debatable? I never 100%. thought of it like that, really. And then, and then what I was thinking was the, 
the further back in time you get, the more... Um, so, for instance, I looked at medieval and early modern history. That was my area. Mm-hmm. I was studying uh, the 18th century Jesuit missions in present-day Bolivia. Um, and you find that as you get further back, you start looking at different things. You don't really doubt whether the events happened or didn't happen anymore. You start looking at, you know, for instance, there's an area called the history of emotions, and UWA was a center for the history of emotions until a few years ago. And um, now we apply that to the med- to medieval times. Rather than debating whether or not this battle happened, we debate, we talk about the concept of love and how love as an emotion changed throughout the medieval era. Um, does that make much sense? <laughs> Okay, I'm trying to follow it. Yeah, but yeah, in- interesting. So, like, yeah, but to answer your question, recent history, no doubt, it's political. Yeah, hundred percent. We um in second year we did a unit on the birth of nations, on nationalism as an idea, and that's um left its mark on me. Shall I say we um let's just say you know when you find out that nation states as we know them have only existed for about 150 years. Yeah, it's a very it's short kind period of time. Yeah, mm-hmm. you then start to look at people who are um diehard nationalists who are willing to go out and, you know, hate people, you know, let alone kill people based on their nationality, you start to look at them and ask yourself, you know, it's kind of all for a, it's a myth. Yeah. Mm. I remember someone telling me this, right? When it comes to human history, imagine the entire timeline of existence was a clock, right? Yeah. As in the first second is the Big Bang and... The final second is to where we are sitting right now. If you were to look at the entire time of human history as a clock in minutes, it would literally be from the first human to today would literally be like 11.59 and 58 seconds. Yeah. That's how long human history, how short human history is because the time period is like so small. So small. Mm-hmm. And then the amount of time we progress is just insane. The other thing I always look at human history is like when when you it's an, it's a it's a good way to reference to it's a good thing to reference for certain political arguments for today like one of the things that like really irritates me a lot is the concept of cultural appropriation mm-hmm. and I'm just like okay and someone's like mm, can you give me what the definitions are when you take something from your culture from some other person's culture that's theirs and you trying to make it something of your own when it doesn't belong to you I'm like human beings have literally been doing that for centuries and yet you're telling me now it's a problem mm. like Romans and Greeks their culture was literally like Roman culture was actually a branch at extension of Greek culture yeah if you look at all their gods if you look at the way they had their military tactics, mm. if the way they look at their governments, yeah. how is that not cultural appropriation? So in in my opinion, cultural appropriation is um, it's loaded. Obviously, it's it's always it's a, it's a negative thing for sure. And that's because I think cultural appropriation is mimicry of a culture that is done without any particular understanding of it. Um <laughs> That's at its at its most innocent, you know. At its most dangerous, cultural appropriation is just outright, you know, um, dressing up. I don't know. In you know, going bl- like a blackface show, for instance. Oh, okay, that's 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 a, that's a that's a topic on its own. Yeah, though. that's how I see that. So, cultural appropriation, or let me think. I mean, say you were, say you fully understood. 
What's a okay? The kefir. You know what a kefir is or a shemug? No. Um, they're the uh, traditional head head scarves, but they can also be worn as scarves. They're worn throughout the um, Middle East, and they're particularly associated with Palestine. Okay. Um. Uh, because um, I think Arafat wore a kefir, a kefir in the shape of Palestine mm-hmm. at all his meetings. He'd make it his kind of trademark. Um, so it's closely bound up with the Palestinian uh, struggle. Mm-hmm. And if a Western company were to then take that pattern of the scarf and brand it as a uh, fashion item, mm-hmm. um, that's a prominent example of cultural appropriation. Where do I stand on that? I feel, I feel like it is wrong to kind of take something that has been such an integral part of that struggle mm-hmm. and wear it as a fashion item. But if you're politically on that side and you're using that as a political symbol, yeah. then sure, absolutely, if you understand the significance of it. Yeah. The Greeks and the Romans, I think that's... Um, I wouldn't even call it cultural appropriation, honestly, because it's more like uh, cultural synthesis. Greece was the... Um, Greece was like a, a prominent center of Europe. And even once Rome had, um, shall we say, conquered Greece mm-hmm. and incorporated it into the empire, the Greek cities still retained all this autonomy. The Greeks mm-hmm. were still largely untouched because, um, like you say, you know, the Roman gods, Roman culture mm-hmm. drew a lot from Greece. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't call it cultural appropriation. Mm. A lot okay. of the time as well, the la- one last point is... My know, argument is just that human beings, we've been doing... Maybe this kind of sort of thing where we've been taking things from cultures and sort of adapting to it for a long time. Mm. Another thing I had an argument with someone about was the idea, the concept of dreadlocks. Dreadlocks? Yeah. That they believe that that's cultural appropriation. Okay. Mm. And then I'm just like, okay, let me give you this. What if I have really, really long hair? (laughs) I'm going into a BJJ competition and I put dreadlocks on for a physical aspect because I don't want the guy ripping my hair off. Is that cultural appropriation? That would be practicality. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah I've, I've never heard that dreadlock argument. Ever. Yeah, I have. Oh. I, I've heard yeah. of it a few times. <laughs> it's it's wow. like dreadlocks is now something white people can't have anymore. Yeah, right. But the cult, dreadlocks have been around since like Egyptian times. Mm. So I think, again, I don't know the full history behind it, yeah. but I've had someone say, oh, white people can't do dreadlocks because it's cultural appropriation. I was like, what, really? Well, what are the practicality? There's actually practicality to the dreadlocks, so yeah. they just can't have it. Okay, whatever. Okay, <laughs> that's a flaw in that argument. I don't know. That that's just sometimes somehow I see it. No, I feel like um, practicality is is a hundred percent. Like, go for it. Like, I mean, if you were in, um, say, you know, like a traditional uh, bath region in Japan, mm-hmm. and you wore a uh, yukata mm-hmm. um, after you'd finished your bath, like a- as a white person or me as a brown person. Wearing a yukata, that's like totally fine. You yeah. know, it's part of that culture. You're wearing a bathrobe um, that is of Japanese design in that bath. Yeah. Um, yeah, sa- same for the dreadlocks in a comp. I mean, obviously, you don't need dreadlocks. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just trying to give a scenario because yeah, that's yeah. the other thing. When it comes to those sort of things, I always say, like, context is, look, listen, man, context is everything. You can't just paint it with a brush and say, nope. Yeah. That's how I was here. Mm. Anyway, uh, steering away from getting political, <laughs> I wanted to actually ask you, man, because how did you come across this idea that, you know, you're going to head over to Spain now for an unforeseeable future? <laughs> the one-way ticket? Yeah, man. Like, yeah. Wh- what's the thought process behind this? The thought process? I'm yeah. in mad balls, man. <laughs> mad balls. Yeah. 
Well, um, not much thought, honestly. That's what I'm trying to avoid. You know, don't plan <laughs> anything, just go for it. But uh, in 2019, I um, had the opportunity to go over to Madrid and uh, study there for a semester with mm-hmm. the uni. And I just enjoyed it. What, and dance with the singeritas, sing with oh, the singeritas. I wish. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> not really. Um, I did take my violin over there. That's a whole new kind of worm. Uh, just a quick one. If you're traveling, if you're backpacking, take an instrument because it opens up so many possibilities to you. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I was living over there, and then afterwards I went traveling around Eastern Europe a bit, all um, all overland, because um, of the violin, you can't risk that on a plane. And um, one thing that I realized, a lesson that I learned over there is, I think a life-changing event sets itself up, sets itself up for you to take advantage of at least once every day of your life. And all so it I takes again. <laughs> At least one time every day of your life, there is the possibility for a life-changing event to happen. Every day. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do, I'll give you two examples. All you have to do is just take one little step. So there were things that I found there. Like, for instance, um, I was in a McDonald's in Sibiu in central Romania. And there were these two guys speaking English there. And uh, I heard they were speaking English, so I kind of walked up to them. And we cracked some jokes about uh, items on the McDonald's menu. Okay. Two hours later, I'm on this minibus hurtling through the forest up a mountain to uh, go play violin at this orphanage that they've set up in the middle of the mountain in an old, like, abandoned mansion. Holy shit. And so stuff like that. And that's why I'm going back to Spain now because the one thing that I felt on that trip, I tried to do no constraints, but there was one restraint, and that was a return ticket. And so I feel like the only way to truly travel and just get out there and live your life is to just remove that final restraint. Just get a one-way ticket. Just go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there were plenty more. Plenty more of those examples I could I could tell you, but you know, <laughs> that's <I won't>. cra- <laughs> no, that's crazy. Yeah, and I actually just you just blew my mind about that as well. Like the fact that you you actually you're doing something that I would say ninety nine percent of this population does not have the guts to do because they're so conflict because they're too scared. Mm. They they worry. They're too anxious. Yeah, about what would happen. It's an anxiety that's um, mm. like all fear. Um, oh, here you go. Here's a short Buddhist line that stuck with me. Fear, and this is from Arjun Brahm's book. Yeah. Fear is finding fault with the future. Okay. That's what fear is. Okay. But we've already established, both you and I in this talk, that the future, you know, who knows what the future is? No one knows what the future is. No one can tell the future. So it doesn't make any sense for us to find fault with the future. Just go forth, you know, go with all your might. Mm. Book that ticket, you know, book that hotel. Get over to Europe. Get over to wherever you want to go, Latin America, um, and just travel. We also feel like you're one of those people who's chasing moments. Experiences, absolutely. Yeah. I, that's, why I, um, that's why I joined the army. That was the like, number one motivation, 100%. It was, <laughs> apart from the you know, emotional distress of heartbreak, <laughs> um, it, was, it was to get experiences that you can't find anywhere else in the world. And 100%, that's true. Like, you know... Where else do you get to paint your face, get dressed up in camouflage, go crawling through the bush? It's um, one thing that I learned as well was in life, there are, let there be good experiences and new experiences, mm-hmm. right? So boot camp, for instance, objectively, that's a bad experience. You know, getting screamed at, you know, getting woken up with a guy screaming at you and then being told to do all your stuff within eight minutes and then having to march everywhere, having no time to actually go to the toilet comfortably for 35 days straight. 
that's objectively a bad experience, right? But it's also a new experience. And not many people in the world are going to have that experience. Yeah. And so enjoy it for it being new. That's how I try and live my life now. Let there be good experiences. And if I'm currently having a bad experience, just make sure it's a new experience, a mm. unique experience. Yeah. Well, I've always believed the idea that, uh, what is it? <sighs> Fuck, I forgot what I was going to say. Fuck. <laughs> uh, I was saying something I remember about bad experience. Like in hindsight, um, the acceptance of a bad experience is actually a good thing huh. and um oh, fuck, i forgot i forgot what it was but it was <laughs> it's the idea that you need to kind of have these bad experiences to have a perspective on life you need to have this um when people look back at achievements in life the most important things to them are their failures because if without the failures, then they wouldn't be getting to yeah. the point of where they were. So yeah, the acceptance of a bad experience is on its own a good experience. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to try and find it. But I wanted to, yeah, uh, I'm going to try and find the quote because it's going to rattle my brain. This is how I am. <laughs> if, I, if I think something and it's in my head and I know I can just simply just Google it, I have to do it. I know that regardless of what I'm doing. <laughs> anyway, um, so. On a, on a less profound note. Yeah. So bad experiences always make best stories. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but at what point were you like, okay, I'm going to go do this? Did you, was there a moment, like a life changing moment, when you said, you know what, I'm going to fucking do this. I'm going to go to Spain and there's not going to be a return ticket. Was it something that happened to you that made you do it or was it a thought process over time? No, I, you know, I finished the, um, so I finished the degree, went pretty hard with army stuff for the first half of the year. And then kind of just decided from there, you know, this is what I want to do. Let's mm -hmm. move to Spain. I don't think there was a particular moment. I did go to Spain in early 2018. And um, I suppose you could call that a moment. Because in the weeks leading up to it. Okay, sorry. Oh, sorry, you found your quote. I found it, I found go it, on, sorry. It's by Mark <laughs> Manson. The desire for a more positive experience itself is a negative experience. And paradoxically, the acceptance of one's negative experience is itself a positive experience. Whew. Finally got to all right. yeah. okay. <laughs> you live you live by that? Yeah. yeah. I do. I nice. do. I'd say stop trying to be happy, man. Mm -hmm. Stop trying to fucking work so hard and don't give in so much to this self help culture. Yeah. So I do believe in self help and that can help obviously that can self and self but all this trying to self improvement and feel good all the time is such a bad thing. Yeah. That's what I tell people. You gotta feel, man. You gotta feel shit. You gotta feel unhappy. You're gonna feel like like life is gonna suck. And that's okay. And if you're someone who's believing that you should be happy all the time, absolute bullshit. Mm. Sorry, you were saying continue yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, greet it with a smile. Yeah. That's what I try and yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, um, sorry, yeah. There was, if, the, if there could be one moment, it would be way back. I just got my first casual job at Officeworks, saved up a bit, and um, at the end of 2017, decided to go traveling to Spain. And now I didn't want to travel to Spain. Mm -hmm. What I really wanted to do was walk around uni and tell people, oh, I'm traveling to Spain. I'm oh. traveling to Spain. And I wanted to hear people. This is like me being truthful with myself. I wanted to hear people <laughs> say, oh, wow, that's so cool. Oh, wow, good on you. Wow, you're so cool, right? I was chasing that. I said it to one of my friends, and I'll always remember this. I said, hey, I'm going to Spain. And she looked at me, and she said, oh, where's the ticket? And it just stopped me in my tracks. And it was like I suddenly woke up. And if I hadn't actually had that conversation with her, 
hadn't oh, gone home and, oh, oh, oh. and booked the tickets that night. I don't know if I'd be going to Spain right now. I don't know if I would have gone to Spain on exchange. Honestly. So if you didn't get called out, then you wouldn't have gone. Someone else had to call me out. Ooh. I think that's true. Maybe if there was one event, it was a friend calling me out. Mm. <laughs> Are you still friends with this person? Absolutely. Do you, does this person to. know that if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't, you wouldn't have gone? I've told her a few times. Ah, uh, okay. I'll, I'll remind her. Uh, I'll try okay. and make it once a year. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, cool. So you're also going to be teaching English to Spanish kids. Yeah, sort of. So um, for any Australians listening, who I think are the majority of your listeners, <laughs> um, the Spanish government wants uh, English native speakers to go over there and um, help out in Spanish schools. So we won't be actually teaching. We won't be running the class. What we will be doing is practicing conversation with English with students of the English language. Um, the Spanish government will pay you a thousand. Or for Madrid, it's a thousand euros a month. For other places, I think it might be a little less, but the work is also less. For um, sixteen hours of work a week, which is a pretty good deal. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I know from previous experience that's more than enough to survive in Madrid. Really? Yeah. So what are you going to be doing to make your money? You're going to be playing violin in the streets? Yeah, could do. Um, You're part of a mariachi band, aren't you? Though I'm part of a mariachi band. Yeah, we um we took a bit little break, but now we're actually back on. We got a gig in a few weeks. Okay. Um, I don't know too much about it. I think it's an end of year party for a business in Perth. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was a good experience. So in Perth, some of the groups I'm playing with uh the mariachi band. We had a uh, Greek band going for a bit. Um, then I run this klezmer band, which is, klezmer is condensed, I suppose you could say. It's Eastern European Jewish celebration music. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it, well, so like, what I, I, for someone who knows nothing about music, like uh, what kind of instruments would be in a band like that? So you'd be expecting an accordion, violin, clarinet's huge nowadays. Okay. Um, yeah, if you've never heard it, I suppose, have you ever heard like a clarinet wailing, like a real wailing clarinet so sound? Because that's probably from Klezma. <laughs> no, I don't think I really have. Have a look on my Instagram. Yeah. You should have already, you should have liked all my videos. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure I've, I've liked it quite a I'm few. I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I have. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, over in Spain, that music culture, that jam culture is so much more like, it's probably population, but like it's it's so so vibrant over there. Um, while I was there, I remember Monday night would be the blues jam night. Tuesday night was the bluegrass. Wednesday night was the gypsy jazz. Thursday night was the klezmer. Friday night was, you know, a jazz jam again. Like every weeknight, I could just take my violin along to a random bar and someone would be playing music and you could just set up there. Really? So, you could um, just do that? Yeah. That's, wow. um, I came back from Spain, honestly, with these, uh, you can't do that here in Perth though. Yeah. 100%. You take a, you take a, um, you take a violin into a bar here in Perth, they'll be like, get that shit out that's, of here. That's exactly what I said when I came back. I was like, and it, like, it, it's true. It's, you take out your violin in Perth and I've tried it at a few places. Really? And to be fair, I've had some nice reactions. <laughs> okay. But on the whole, I think, um, I don't know if it's a culture thing or an education thing or a music education thing, but in Spain, from personal experience, I take out my violin, like I took out a violin in a bar. This guy had a guitar there. And like, oh, he went upstairs, he grabbed his guitar, came back down and he started playing with me. You just, and like, he just like that. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid to, I think this is a central thing. He wasn't afraid to look bad for two minutes while he was learning it, learning the song so that we could then have two hours of fun. Right. Wow. Whereas I think, in a, I feel, I suspect in Australia, uh, Perth specifically, music education is, uh, seeks to professionalize our music, right? It seeks to like 
we are kind of told that, you know, if you're playing your instrument, it should be for money. If you're playing your instrument, you should be performing your best because people are watching you. People are listening to you. People are taking notes. And what this has produced is are like young musicians, student musicians who are terrified of like taking their instrument out in public and being spontaneous. And I've experienced that personally myself. I do believe in that. I actually thinking about that. I actually, that, I actually agree because how often do you see people playing in the streets these day these yeah. days? Not a lot. I mean almost not a lot. In the in the rock scene, in the Perth like indie rock scene, that's yeah. that's perfect. I love that. There's definitely that Europe vibe there. Okay. But just going um going back to uni after after like living in Spain for a bit, or Europe in general, that vibe exists throughout Europe, you could definitely see a difference. Like for context, I was in um Krakow for the um Jewish culture festival. Um, I ended up there after the semester of study and there was a band playing on the streets. They were playing these uh, like Jewish folk songs, klezmer songs. And I kind of just walked straight up to them and I was like, Hey, I've got my violin at the hostel. I know all these tunes you're playing. Can I join in? And they said, yeah, sure. Wow. And so I just went, grabbed a violin, played with them for two hours. We ended up, um, the event organizers came down to us and like diverted traffic around us just because we were drawing like a crowd that we were starting to block the road. Um, and yeah, again, I don't know if it's a culture thing. I don't know if it's a population thing, but I suspect it's a music education thing at the tertiary level. Okay. I suspect that especially our classical music students are kind of reluctant, 100% reluctant to um, to just look bad for the sake of the love of music. Do you just play the violin or do you play anything else? I play accordion, piano wow. too. Um Guitar, a little bit of banjo. <laughs> I find the accordion has actually been um, very useful. You know, crack that one out at parties, sing a Russian folk song or two. And <laughs> okay. So what got you into music as a kid? What got you into playing instruments? Violin was my first. Okay. At age four, I saw um, a video of the violinist Itzhak Perlman, mm-hmm. uh, American violinist, playing. And my mum always tells me that's why I kind of pointed that out. My mum's a uh, music teacher oh. and she was a big inspiration music um she was my first piano teacher as well when i started the piano so yeah but yeah violin started at four and pursued it through to university and then kind of stopped stopped with the focus on classical at least and now i'm purely playing that folk style uh, a bit of jazz i try <laughs> mm-hmm. always learning and um mainly that klezmer stuff Okay. The Eastern European stuff, yeah. So what is about this type of music that you find so enjoyable? Like, why this style? Uh, Could you say that it chose you or, <laughs> yeah, you know? True. But what is it about uh, it, like, you know? Uh, possibly the, the spontaneity of it. The okay. reason, for me, it's associated with my time in Europe. And so when I play it, I um, it's the community aspect of it. The fact that they're simple tunes, simple chords. So you can feasibly just crack out your instrument and grab a friend who plays their instrument, teach it to them within five minutes. That's what I did when I came back from Europe. I started organizing these little jam sessions, um, often in the lake across the road from Whopper, where I just um, meet up with some people. I went and flyer dropped at um, at Whopper and UWA and also the um, like community centers around. I went to a synagogue, um, Temple David, the Reform Synagogue in Mount Lowly. Um, yeah, I just fly dropped and I said, if anyone wants to jam, I'll be here at this day at this time. Mm-hmm. Come down and like, yeah, every week some people would come down and would just run through these really easy folk songs. <sighs> I guess 
that's why a lot of people like Irish folk songs as well, you know, because you crack out Irish standards at a pub and people will just play them and play them and play them. Um, it's the community aspect as well as the music aspect. I think that's why this style of music appeals to me. Uh, interesting. So do you feel what's drawing you so much to Spain as well was that commu- that community culture regarding around music? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Nice. So once we're there, man, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have a lot of free time, I suppose, because yeah. the, the teaching gig's pretty good. Um, my brother lives in Spain as well. Uh, He's um, studying his PhD in economics. Okay. So he um, will probably be having dinner every Sunday, I assume, like last time. We didn't live together last time, and we probably won't live together this time because we've got different ideas regarding our lifestyle, shall we say. Okay. He's, okay. Um, <laughs> he was living in um, one of the uh, the posh neighborhoods. Okay. Um, whereas I was in, shall we say, a less posh neighborhood. Okay. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. I uh, had a few things stolen from me down there. Really? Uh, yeah, it's all like part what? of the adventure. Well, I got my phone pickpocketed from me in a bar. Oh, wow. And um, using my friend's phone, we cracked up, uh, we, we pulled up Find My iPhone. Yeah. And we actually saw the little dot moving down the street. Yeah. So we ran out of the bar. We ran onto the street and we started chasing this little dot. And we yeah. got all the way to a plaza. Um, and then it disappeared. She finally figured out the person who robbed. Like my friend saw her. So we knew who we were looking for. Yeah. Um, and the person who stole the phone finally figured out how to turn it off. And so like the dot disappeared. But I almost had my own little detective story there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. But it's a fun neighborhood, you know, like, um, you know, like I say, good experiences and new experiences. Mm-hmm. The phone was old. It was cracked. It was probably worth getting a new one anyway. So, um, yeah, didn't lose too much. Okay. And the thief gained a really terrible phone. <laughs> that probably would have earned her about $25. What else did you, uh, would you, did you have stolen? Um, luckily, nothing else. I was pretty on guard, but I had a few attempts. Now, if you're traveling in Europe, be very careful of people who come up to you and try to ask you to show them... Um, uh, try to ask if you want to see a football trick, right? Or okay. something similar to that. A guy came up to me and um, he told me it was a traditional Moroccan greeting, but it was the exact same thing. It's bullshit. Okay. What it is, is they'll come up to you and they'll hook their legs around you in all these weird ways and their arms around you. Like you're getting touched in like five different spots, Jeez. five different spots of physical contact. And it happens really quickly. And then they start jumping up and down. And the thing is, because they're doing that, that overloads your senses. You're like, oh, wow, this guy's touching me all like everywhere. What do I think? In the meantime, their hand's quietly gone into your pocket and it's taken your phone out of it. Oh, wow. Um, so you got to be careful. Yeah, it's pretty um, – makes makes sense. Um, that happened to me the first time, and luckily all my, pottons, all my pockets are buttoned up. Ooh. And the second time it happened, I knew what was going on, so I just shoved the guy off, yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. But I've seen it happen to other people, and people like people do think – it's just a guy trying to be nice, like show them a football trick or something. Nah. Oh, okay. Keep your distance. All right. <laughs> so we're aiming to go there for... Hey? We're aiming to go there for like a non-foreseeable future and all that, you know? Yeah. And so then we're going to move on somewhere else or... Well, you know, as like like you know, as you know, I don't really like plans, future plans. No, no, no. Yeah, but I've got like a direction. That. Okay. Right? And so the general direction is to head back over east, um, go to Lithuania, reconnect with that klezmer band. They're called the Rakia Klezmer Orchestra, if any of the listeners want to look them up on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Very good guys from Lithuania. 
So I'll try and reconnect with them. I want to go. I do want to go to Ukraine, and it's nothing to do with the war. Really? Um, and get this, I want to go to Eastern Ukraine. Why? And it's because that's where a lot of this music originated. Wow. And it's just my bad luck that now Eastern Ukraine is very much a no-go zone. That is so fucking ballsy. <laughs> yeah. But um, we'll see if the situation allows me to go there. After that, it's across Russia. I want to see Central Asia. I actually really want to go to Russia. Russia, yeah. Like, there's so much to see there. I wish I could go to Russia. Just obviously wouldn't go right now because of the time period of what yeah. we're living in. But the reason why I want to go to Russia is because I respect Russians so much. The Russian, Rus- Russian people, their culture rubs Westerners the wrong way. <laughs> like in Russia, they're so miserable all the time, but they're also so brutally honest. If mm. something sucks in Russia, they'll say so. If you're being a dickhead, they'll tell you you're being a dickhead, and they they really speak their mind. Yeah. And the reason why I feel like I could go, I really want to go to Russia, is because personally myself. I wish sometimes I could just rub off that Western fake niceness. Yeah. Uh, have like, if I could really say yeah. what I mean, I know that I'd be pissing off a lot of people, but yeah. at the same time, but that's just a culture which I relate to in Russia and all. <laughs> you want to go over there to get shouted at? Yeah, I do. I can shout at you if you I want. Do. <laughs> I want to go to Russia because I, I want to be told that, that that's <laughs> the way it is about, because that's honesty and it's purest <laughs> expression, man. I feel like honesty is the main thing. And I feel yeah. like if human beings would just stop being so fake nice all the time and being so brutally honest with themselves yeah. and each other, well, it would be a very different place. So I wish I could go to Russia. I'd be told a whole bunch of things, you know what I mean? You know, and that, that's we, the main reason why. And I'd swivel that shit down like it's the <laughs> best vodka I've ever had. You know what I mean? Oh, the best kvass you've ever had. Yeah. I don't want to drink kvass ever again. You know about this? What is it? They drink it in Russia. It's like, um, it's like Coke. But it's like a mix between Coke and beer. I don't know how to describe it. It's a really unique taste, and it's uh, really. I'm gonna go to try it. It's, <laughs> it's don't don't. I mean, okay, try it. <laughs> don't come I gotta try it, it once. Don't try it once. Say it's shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's interesting you say that, yeah, because I agree. It's, I think in the West, I don't know if it's a Western thing or an English speaking thing yeah. or a um, like a British culture thing that we've adopted here in Australia. But it's it's definitely, you know, we're taught that the polite thing to do is to be indirect. We're, we're told that it's polite to be indirect. You know, it's polite to say, oh, I don't think I'll be able to make it rather mm. than telling someone I'm not coming. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and I like that. Is, when you actually step back and look at it, the polite thing to do is to be direct. Yeah. The polite thing to do is to tell someone, oh, there's stuff coming out of your nose. Yeah. You know, oh, there's food on the corner of your mouth. Oh, yeah. you're being stupid. Stop. Yeah. Or like, please shut up. That's the polite thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and... um. Yeah, Russia, Eastern Europe, I found a lot of that vibe for yeah. sure. You know, I respect that personally myself more because that's what I do expect of other people. Yeah, In my line of work, I respect it more when someone says no rather than me have to constantly try and chase someone to get the answer out of them. Oh, you must, that must be hell. Dealing with like a client who doesn't want to yeah. continue, but... They they think it's polite to say, oh, maybe not. Maybe yeah. Not. yeah. I love that. I love it when someone says no straight away. Yeah. Because then I don't have to give it any benefit of doubt. Yeah. But if you don't, I'm going to have to pursue it. Yeah. And then sometimes I just come across situations, just yes or no, mate. Do you want this or not? Yeah. That's it. And then some people, some, I don't know, but they're just so scared to piss people off, man. Yeah. But in Russia, it's not like that, man. Yeah. I've met a few Russians in my life. They'll say a whole bunch of things to me, but I actually ended up, maybe I didn't like them, but I respected them <laughs> so much because that's the way that I feel like as human beings, um, I feel like we get too comfortable, man, sometimes, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, we need those kind of people in our lives to be telling us those kinds of things. And hey, Joe. 
Yeah. Where's the ticket? Where's the ticket? Where's the ticket? Where's the ticket? As my it. friend once told me, yep, where's the ticket? I have the fucking ticket. Can you tell me you want to fly there? Uh, where's the ticket? <laughs> well, first of all, I can't fucking afford to fly there. Yeah, right no, now. no one no. I paid. I paid $1,300 for a one-way <laughs> ticket to Madrid. Yeah, well, that, that money always comes and goes, man, in this society, you know. Um, with the money as well, like, I, I, that, I mean, you, you're always going to make it throughout your life. So stop trying to bloody worry about it all the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy for you, man. I think it's what you're doing that is absolutely solid. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all the things I really wanted to ask for you. So I just wanted to wrap up this podcast. If there's anything you want to drop, or any wisdom you want to drop, or anything, <laughs> or any advice, or any little memos you want to give before oh. we wrap this up, man. Nah, I love um, as all my friends will tell you, I love therapizing friends, uh, unsolicited <laughs> therapizing. Yeah, but um, nah, it's always in in response to situations, so I can't can't drop wisdom on demand. Okay, unfortunately, but um, keep reading, keep thinking. I suppose is that what people say at the end of podcasts? I don't know. Normally I say it and that's game and that's it. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, podcasts are interesting. You feel like you've got a captive audience. I mean, you, you're my captive audience for starters, but then anyone listening, they can't really run away, can they? Well, the thing is with this podcast, man, like I always, I just do it for my fucking self. Yeah. Like it's, I'm, I love, I love anyone who's listening to this podcast. I'm, at the end of the day, I'm like, I love you, man. I love you, <laughs> girl. I love you. Man, woman, it doesn't matter whoever, whatever you want me to call you. Or I'm happy. I'm, I respect the fuck out of your fact that you're taking any time to listen to this. But deep down, man, if I never got a download, if I never get downloads for anything, mm. I'll still keep going, man. That's because so good. That's good. I don't check my downloads anymore. Yeah. I stopped checking downloads over a month ago. Mm-hmm. And I just kept enjoying the podcast. I kept just doing it. And because at the end of the day, I do it for myself. Now you're you're writing a book as well, aren't you? Yeah. Can you? Are we too close to the end? Can you you know what? No, that? let's keep pushing. Let's keep okay, pushing. Go on. So I because we're on books. I am writing a book. Um, it's about something that's quite deep and personal to me. Okay. So it's a fictional book, and because I can't stand the idea of just not writing. One thing deep about myself, Morgan, is I've been journaling every almost not every day, but I've been journaling since I was sixteen years old. Wow. Uh, ever since I was 16 years old and had, I feel like my thoughts just race and I have to write them down. Yeah. And I, so I just do that. And I've been writing more and more and more to a point where I can write a page a day and it'll be like effortless. It'll be like 10 minutes. You know, even It doesn't even have to be a page. It can be less than a page. But the thought of not writing to me drives me mad. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea where the book came from. Like I had these ideas in my head and I just wanted to get them out on paper because if I don't, writes i'm always one of those people if i don't write it down i don't do it in the moment i'm gonna forget yeah so i'm writing a book right now it's a fictional book and the idea and the reason why i'm so happy with it is because the idea of not doing this just drives me more mad Mm. and so it's a fictional book it's based off some things i went through but i don't want to give away too much of the story of course because i feel because i know when it gets released if if it ever gets released or ever gets published it's the first of its time. Right. So it's, you know, if it's, maybe I'm committing like some office, you know, don't write about your life because yeah. not everyone's going to find it amusing. No, I'm like, no, I'm doing it for myself. Because of course, yeah. The idea yeah. of not writing this book 
drives me mad and i'll honestly do this as a side hustle to up to the end of my life you know mm. like charles bukowski i'm not trying to be like charles yeah. bukowski but charles bukowski he wrote like shit loads of books before he got famous yeah because the idea of just not writing just drove him mad mm-hmm. you know and, and that's why the things i do in this life um i know i'm not trying to be a big celebrity or anything like that but the things i do on a day-to-day basis like working out if i don't work out first thing in the morning it drives me mad. I don't care what fucking time it is. Mm. I'll wake up at three fifty if I have to, AM, yeah. just so I can go and train for an hour before my first client at six. Yep. I will do it because the idea of just not doing it, I'll wake up that morning and I'll feel like a like shit. Yep. If I don't write a page in my journal or read a page of the Daily Stoic, it drives me mad. Yep. So that's why if I don't do a podcast, it drives me mad and all that. Yeah. So I do all these things to keep myself sane because also because I'm so happy with it. They're so effortless. That's good. I don't have to force myself to do these podcasts. I don't have to force myself to write. So that's why I believe I'm able to do so many things because they feel so effortless to me. Yeah. I think that's that's the main thing I've got now down for myself. Um, so when this book is eventually written, I mean, I'm up to five, no, I'm, uh, I'm up to about seven or eight chapters right now. Right. So I'm about 50-something, no, 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 60-something pages in. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then when it's done, it's it's done, and then I'll just move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, live for yourself. Yeah, that's exactly right. Y- like, who are, who are you with from the moment you're born? To the moment you die yourself you're with yourself yeah that's the person you have always been closest to yeah i think that's 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 the wisdom i can say at the end <laughs> yeah of the podcast yeah um i think this is um brought up in that in that buddhist book i've been talking about so much <laughs> that old um the old christian mantra of love your neighbor as you love yourself in the west in the judeo-christian tradition we we interpret that as you know treat your neighbor well just like you treat yourself well mm. but i think in this day and age it's equally as accurate mm-hmm. to talk about treating yourself as like you know with the same kind of care that you treat other people around you because yeah. i don't know about you but i know a lot of people and myself definitely i'll go to the ends of the earth to please someone else but then for myself i won't show myself that same kind of respect mm-hmm. i'll be willing to you know I'll be willing to give someone else the benefit of the doubt so much. And then the moment I make a mistake, I'll turn around and look at myself and say, oh, why did I do that? So stupid. Yeah. You know? I'm finding myself becoming more and more selfish now that I'm getting a little bit older, you know? But being selfish can be a good thing. Uh, I think it's gonna be, I think it can be a great <laughs> thing. Yeah. I feel like because everything I'm doing right now, I mean, of course, I have a partner and all, and I want to have a lovely future for us. But at the end of the day, nothing's forever so i'm doing a lot for myself mm-hmm. more and more for myself these days like podcasting myself working for myself yeah reading writing for myself it's for my own pursuit of meaning um and i believe jordan peterson said it best is take care of yourself like you were responsible for taking care of someone else yeah there you go exactly yeah. you know like when you when if you had like a brother or sister who was sick and you were their carer you'd have to attend to everything that they're doing yeah so why not do the same for yourself? Yeah. You know, um, I feel like we try so hard to please people all the time, but if we t- do that, we will never be happy because we're constantly morphing to meet other people's expectations. Yeah. Uh, 
No doubt. And I think that's the one thing I also respect about you because you're going away to Spain and you don't give a sh... Well, I mean, <laughs> you couldn't... G- I'm not... I'm not that's true, but I yeah, feel like you on. can't give a shit about what's going on here in Perth or what other people think about it. You're doing this for yourself. You're going to Spain because your pursuit of meaning is more important yeah. than meaning the expectations of others. Yeah. You've only got one life. You've only got 90 years to live it. Yeah. So you just got to, you know? And like the fact that I'm leaving yeah. has given has made me a little bit more selfish as well because I suddenly realize, you know, I've got one month left. It's time for me to spend every single second yeah. with people I genuinely enjoy being around, you know? It's time yeah. to say those hard truths to people, to sometimes friends mm-hmm. who do some things that, you know, don't rub me the right way. Mm-hmm. I have to call them out for things before I go. Mm-hmm. And I can because I've got that kind of, you know, quit without save vibe by going to Spain and just leaving it all behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, thank you for your words. No I am trying to, yeah. I think that's the I'm best way. I feel like, honestly, I feel like that's the best way to fucking live. Uh, um, and when you, I also tell myself this, if you are someone who gets riled up about the littlest of things, right? They mm-hmm. get so upset about the littlest of things. You are just not doing enough for yourself. Mm-hmm. I, got to a point now where I'm approaching 24 and I'm doing all these, I'm doing all these things. And when I'm busy, I couldn't give a shit about who's making more money than me. I couldn't give a shit about who's better than me because I'm so focused on doing my own things myself. So whenever I find I catch myself getting jealous of something else, I think to myself, Oh, I'm just not doing I'm not paying attention to my own things enough mm. because if I was so busy caught up, that person that what they were doing just would fly by. They're just doing them. Yeah. So another thing I think I remember hearing on the Joe Rogan podcast, um, was a guest was saying you should je- jealousy poison. I think I can't, oh, I can't remember <laughs> the point. I'm going to find, but yeah. jealousy poisons the vessel. Uh-huh. Like you should never want to, uh, Oh, you never want to do something with yeah. jealousy as the primary motivation. Exactly, correct. Yeah. Okay. You should never ever want someone else's life yeah. of jealousy because you don't know what they had to go through to get there. Like yeah. their, their trauma, their adversity. You have to take that, you know what I mean, if you want that life as well. Yeah. So like people being famous and celebrities and all that, well, how do you know anything about the trauma that they had to go through just to get to that position? Yeah. And you, do you have to ask yourself, do you want that as well? It's not just the success you're asking for. It's the trauma and it's the tears and it's the failures, it's the animosity. So you have to ask yourself, do you want that as well? As well. So When you're when you're jealous too, it's yeah. easy to lose sight of your own achievements. Correct. Because next to someone whose life you really want, you, you know, you're blind to your own achievements because all you can focus on is, wow, how good are they? How handsome are they how big are they how much can they lift you know how clever are they and we yeah we lose sight of our own achievements like look at your own achievements right and i suppose that's when we make our personal achievements like you know you've had this podcast series going for you know over 100 episodes you're writing your own book mm-hmm. those are massive achievements and when i look at that i can be like wow that's incredible but if i would allow myself to get caught up in the in your achievements yeah. i'd lose sight of my own yeah it's like oh i've got a History dissertation. I've traveled in Europe. Um, I think that's one thing to also keep in mind. You don't want other people's struggles as well. And equally, like like you say, their trauma, what they had to do to get those good things. Mm -hmm. But equally, don't lose sight of your own good things. 
Because mm-hmm. once you realize just how high that your own pedestal is, <laughs> mm. the pedestal you put others on starts to look, you know, less impressive. Yeah. So that's why I've got, like, um, that's the main thing about you. I would also say about yourself, because you'll talk to some people and be like, oh, I wish I was going to Spain. Oh, I wish I was, you know, playing in a band and going to live in a nomad life. But I'm like, well, at the same time, if they say that, then they're going to have to accept the things that you go through as well. Like you've been through fucking been 10 hours on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> among other things. Yeah. Amongst other <laughs> things, you know, getting your phone stolen and yeah. making mistakes and, you know, being in the army, like in, in reserves, like that's what they have to accept as well to get to that mentality point of fuck it. I'm going to go to Spain. Yeah. So that's, that's the main thing. Yeah. Alrighty. Uh, I think that's, I think that's uh, ending out on a high, man. So Absolutely. we'll cap that off. Yeah, uh, guys, thank you very much for listening. Um, Morgan, thank you very much for coming, man. Thank we you very much. Appreciate Adam. it. Very and, good uh, to finally be on. And uh, I'm looking forward to you know this a few years down the track. If I'm still doing this, man, and you get back, <laughs> I feel like we're going to do another episode and we're going to go like, holy shit! Do you remember that time when we spoke about this <laughs> conversation on this table years ago? Oh, my accent will change for sure. Yeah, I'll be something. I'll, I'll pr- we'll probably do it over Zoom or something. Honestly, I'll be in Romania, which maybe you know we'll absolutely see. aces Australia's internet speed anyway. So that's true. <laughs> true. I'm not really the biggest fan of Zoom. Yeah. Zoom. I, I Have you ever done any of these podcasts over? Oh, so many. Yeah. So many. When I was in the early days of this podcast, a lot of the stuff I would do was Zoom interviews. The reason why I did Zoom interviews is because I just wanted to do episodes. I was like, oh, "Fuck, yeah. I'm so enjoying. I want to do more episodes." Just crack them out. But I never felt the emotional connection. That you get from just having a conversation with someone in person. I can lean over here and smack you if you say something wrong. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but the other day is just like when it's over the internet, you got your headphones, things going around you, you get distracted. You, you know, you you have to wait for them to speak. You can't talk over them. Yeah, it's more interview style, but for me, it's more gent. I feel like being in person is more gent. Yeah. Anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening to the Last Set podcast. All the best, and that is game.